This episode talks about the sexual abuse of minors and may be upsetting to some listeners. Jeffrey Epstein ran a sex trafficking operation practically out in the open for years. Some of his wealthy Palm Beach neighbors noticed a steady stream of cabs turning onto their dead-end street and pulling up at 358 El Brio Way. These neighbors called the police after seeing what seemed like a parade of young girls coming and going from the multi-million dollar property. The police even surveilled the house, surrounded by 20-foot hedges. But they didn't see enough to move forward with a full investigation. Then, in March 2005, they received a horrifying complaint. The parent of a young girl called the Palm Beach Police Department, describing how her daughter had been brought by a friend to see an older man. All she had was a vague description of the house and the man. Um, we know he's got a two-story house in Palm Beach, and he's a gentleman by the age of 45. School administrators had found $300 in the girl's bag. Her stepmom had no idea where she could have gotten all that cash. So after asking her and asking her and asking her what was going on, she found out that... The girl admitted that she had been brought to this man's house to give him a massage. And she wasn't the only one. You know what I mean? Um, she brings in girls... You know, very young. Uh, they start off by giving this gentleman a massage. Um, and he pays them if he likes them and he thinks that they're pretty enough, he keeps them around to do other things. Okay. That first victim identified others, told them how it was a word of mouth thing, where teenage girls recruited their friends and classmates to massage this creepy old guy in a huge house. The more officers dug into the allegations, the clearer it became that there might be a teenage sex abuse operation right in the richest part of Palm Beach, and an extremely active one at that. I'm Tara Palmieri, host of Broken Seeking Justice. I've been reporting alongside the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein as they search for justice after his death. Epstein's co-conspirators are still alive, and they continue to deny allegations that they facilitated the abuse of minors. It's been more than a year since Epstein's suicide, and most of his enablers still haven't been brought to account. Now, we're going to explore the roots of this injustice. On two different occasions, police and prosecutors put together criminal cases against Jeffrey Epstein. If the charges had stuck, they would have put Epstein in prison for a very long time and saved dozens of women and girls from being harmed. In this episode, we'll talk about the first time Jeffrey Epstein escaped justice. You might be thinking it would be too risky to run a large sex trafficking operation through a high school, using teenagers to lure other teenagers to come to be abused. But it happened, for years, with no repercussions. It was only an accidental discovery and a call from a distraught parent that gave police the information they needed to pursue the case. Mike Ryder was the chief of that police department. 
he could tell early on this could be explosive. A very rich man in a wealthy and powerful community abusing young girls, mostly from poor backgrounds. He put one of his best detectives on it, Joe Riccari. Riccari discreetly began interviewing girls, some of whose phone numbers match those he found on Epstein's message pads. Can you raise your right hand for me? You solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will help you God? Yeah. Okay. Chief Ryder wanted to keep the investigation confidential. If the case became public too early, there was a risk Epstein would find out about it and try to intervene. He was concerned about those girls, you know, who were very young. Julie K. Brown interviewed some of the victims extensively for her series in the Miami Herald. These girls were petrified of Epstein. I mean, these girls believed, right or wrong, that he could kill them and their families. Most of the girls where Carrie spoke with were able to give him more names. Okay. I just, I just don't want to stay now. Okay. Don't you worry. Her. Don't you okay. worry. Um, okay. But I have another victim in the other room. Okay. All right. Well, Many of the girls came from the same school, Royal Palm Beach Community High School. That's where Epstein had set up a kind of scheme, offering each teenage girl $200 to bring someone new. But there was one local girl who recruited for Epstein for three years who was never identified by the police. She ended up being the person who would fight for more than a decade to make sure he was brought to justice. Now, we're going to tell you how she got tangled up in Epstein's world. Courtney Wilde was 14 the first time she was brought to Jeffrey Epstein's house. In many ways, Courtney Wilde fit what the police might have called a typical victim profile. She was slender, just entering high school, and crucially, her family never had enough money to make ends meet. Exactly the kind of girl that Epstein targeted. She grew up in a poor neighborhood in West Palm Beach. It's a smattering of little white cube mobile homes, some shuttered. It's less than 15 miles from Epstein's mansion, but a world away. Courtney's parents fought constantly. She often came home to find her mom high on drugs. She had this idea that she could be different from them, that she could get out of the trailer park and make something of herself. And so she worked hard at school. She had straight A's, never a B, she says. She did anything she could to not be home. When she got to high school, she thought, I got this. She just needed to keep getting good grades, and in four years, she'd be gone, off to college or a job that paid real money, far away from the trailer park. One of her friends, who also came from a poor, struggling home, told Courtney about an easy way to make some cash. An old guy who liked massages. Courtney took some persuading, but decided to go there with her friend. A couple hundred bucks would go a long way for her. Perhaps she could fund her dream. She could escape. Okay, I'm 14. I go to this mansion. I meet this woman, Sarah, and I'm escorted up. And this is like, okay, every, this is okay in this house. Like, what's happening in this house? Like, he comes in, he has a smile on his face. You know, the person I'm with has already been, so they know the drill. What happened next changed the course of Courtney's life. I was molested by him. I just felt unworthy. I didn't feel whole. I felt like, you know, a piece of me had been taken. I'm looking right now at a picture of Courtney from that year, taken around the time that she had met Epstein. She's such a little girl, this huge smile with braces on her teeth. She looks so sweet, so optimistic, so young. 
Before she was brought to Epstein's house, the extent of her sexual experience had been kissing a guy. The first time I went, I was like so disgusted. Like, this is wrong. Like, this guy's weird. Like, why does he want me? I have braces. I remember walking down the stairs and like I said, just being like, ew, like how nobody's ever going to want, who is going to want me after that? I can't believe I allowed that to happen. Of course, Courtney would never go back, she told herself. It was awful. But then her mother was screaming about how they were going to lose the trailer. Courtney had a tough choice. If she was going to have a different life, she'd need money. So once I started going to him and making the money, it was like, okay, $200 in exchange to be molested. But if I went to him, you know, once every day, $200 a day in the beginning or, you know, a couple times a week, that's a lot of money for, you know. Anyone, really. Right. It got to a point where it was like, um, it was super uncomfortable, obviously, the whole experience. But then that's when it turned into, you could bring me girls and still get paid the same. She became a recruiter for Epstein, bringing in girls from school and local malls. Other girls she knew seemed to be making the same choice. Courtney dropped out of high school after just a couple of months and got drawn even further into his orbit. And the idea that maybe Epstein could give her the money to become free, it became true. At 16, she rented her own apartment. She even got her own car. Basically, my main um, income is from Jeffrey. Over time, Courtney started feeling worse and worse about going to Epstein's and bringing other girls there to be molested. But like so many victims of abuse, Courtney at first didn't think the problem was Epstein or the other people around him. She thought it was her. I know that I was underage, but I was a part of the problem by bringing people there. She even believed that she was as guilty as he was. I had the choice to go to him. I had the choice for it to continue, and I always did. That's why I felt like I wasn't a victim, you know? But, um... Yeah. But you are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) By the time Courtney turned 17, she'd become disenchanted. She just couldn't keep convincing herself it was all a good trade-off, that she was the one taking advantage of Epstein. Like, I wasn't intimate with a boyfriend or somebody cared about. I was intimate with this 50-year-old guy. Like, that's disgusting. Like, why did I do that, you know? I just didn't love myself. I was so angry. I was upset. I felt, you know, it made me feel dirty. Just as Courtney began to want to escape Epstein, she stopped getting those calls to come over, to bring her friends. Courtney had lost the braces, grown out of her pubescent body. She was looking more mature after three years, too old for Epstein's taste. And that's how it ended, for Courtney and so many other girls. After being groomed by Epstein, sometimes for years, they were tossed aside when they grew up. When Epstein was alive, He referred to the women and girls he abused as tissues. One of his female friends told me that he used that term as a way to say, these women didn't matter. They could be thrown away after use at little cost to him. It's a disgusting way to think about any person. But Epstein made a mistake when he dismissed these women as disposable. Just a year after Courtney lost touch with him, police began interviewing nearly two dozen local girls who, like her, had firsthand knowledge of how Epstein's operation worked. (laughs) 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. It wasn't easy for Detective or Carrie to get the girls to talk. Some were clearly edgy while telling their stories. One was so ashamed she wouldn't speak in front of her parents, instead leaving her Carrie a voicemail after he stopped by her home. Hi, Joseph. You were at my house last night. Um, I didn't really tell the whole truth about Jeffrey because my parents were right there. I don't want you guys calling my, coming to my house. I will tell you over the phone the truth so you guys to save the trip, and I will tell you the truth. So um, call the summer back. Thank you. Bye. The cops interviewed 22 girls over 11 months, many of whom were minors or minors at the time that they visited Epstein. A lot of these girls didn't know each other, yet they all had near-identical stories about how Epstein's operation worked. Here's what they described. First, a girl would be recruited by a friend, another girl who told her how she could make some easy money. The recruiters would coach new victims to say they were older than they were, like this girl telling police how she was coached to say she was 18. And that was actually telling to say I was 18 because um, if you're not done, she won't really like you in the house. Then the girls would drive or cab together to Epstein's house, where they would enter through the kitchen. That's where they'd wait to be summoned. Where did you sit in the kitchen with? Um, we had a cook that was there, and we had, um, there was like two other girls that I guess lived with them. Okay. Sometimes, a chef would make them food. One note here, if you heard our episode on chef Adam Perry Lang, we should mention he left Epstein's employment two years before the police investigation started. Glamorous adult women seemed to always be at the property, too. Several girls remember meeting Epstein's assistant, Sarah Kellen, who allegedly booked many of these visits. Others remembered Nadia Marcinkova. According to an old police report, Epstein bragged to one of his victims that he purchased the young Slovakian woman from her family when she was only 15 years old. Kellen's lawyer did not respond to requests for comment. But last year, her lawyer did give a statement to CNN claiming Kellen was a victim. Marcinkova, who was also identified in Epstein's non-prosecution agreement as a possible co-conspirator, gave a statement to the New York Times, saying that she herself was a victim too. There were other women and they acted friendly, greeted the girls by name, although their names have been redacted in these recordings by the state attorney's office. Who were you introduced to? One of his girlfriends, one of his, like, slaves that he has lived with him. And when I say slaves, like, one of the girls that he bought to, like, have sex with him. Um, I was introduced to his assistant, and she's the one who told me that he would be ready in a second. Next, someone would lead the girl upstairs. There's a staircase in the kitchen, and I went through the staircase in the kitchen up to the master suite. She would be brought into a large bedroom. She took you where? Upstairs. Took you upstairs to to, uh, to a bedroom? Yeah, to a bedroom. And I was like, I was freaked out. And there, in a strange room, in a strange house, she would be left alone. 
Did she tell you anything? Did she say anything? There's a massage table, and she just laid a towel down, and she said that Jeffrey will be up taking some. She would wait there nervously until Jeffrey Epstein made his appearance. Was he in the room already when you went into the room? No. Okay. What did What did Sarah do when she led you to the room? She like set up this like massage therapy bed. Okay. Um, I don't know what they're called, but just like a little like thing, and she like set it up and she left. But she was really nice. Like I didn't know what to expect. We've made the decision on this season not to describe the abuse the girls suffered. We made that choice because several of the victims asked us not to talk about that. We can say the awful details are consistent. These girls are talking about a man and a group of enablers with a clear and deeply disturbing pattern of abuse. You can hear the tapes. These girls sound young. One of the 14-year-olds called Epstein's penis a wee-wee. Of course, a single teenager story might not hold up against a powerful, wealthy defendant, but the police didn't have one teenager. They had nearly two dozen with nearly identical stories remembering the same details. And that's not all they had. Here's Julie K. Brown. The fact is, the police had other information to back up these girl stories. They had all these message pads. They had schedules. They had paper that showed that Courtney, for example, is coming at 5 o'clock tomorrow and she's bringing, you know, Beth. They collected a lot of physical evidence. Sex toys, message books with notes like, I have two girls for him. They subpoenaed phone records, which showed that numerous phone calls were made between Sarah Kellen and the victims. A student transcript was found in Epstein's bedroom. The police interviewed two of the housemen, Juan Alessi, who you met in the last episode, and Alfredo Rodriguez, who has since died. According to a probable cause affidavit, both stated that young girls were entering the house multiple times per day to give massages to Epstein. They both said they cleaned vibrators and sex toys, which were in the bathroom sink after the massages. Alessi later amended this statement. In 2016, he stated that the sex toys he found were in Ghislaine Maxwell's sink. For his part, Rodriguez said he knew they were high school girls. He said Epstein had him deliver a dozen roses to one of the girls after her high school play. Rodriguez even produced evidence of the request, a note on Epstein's stationery with the instructions to buy roses. The police recorded this interview with Rodriguez, who said he had been skeptical that the girls he saw were professional masseuses. Did you feel that they were masseuses? No. no. Some, some they were. And some they weren't. Okay. Out of the 15 people that you saw during your six, your six months, uh, how many were those would you say were not masseuses? The majority. The majority. By the end of their investigation, Detective Vercari had a stack of incredibly compelling evidence. He had identified five victims and 17 witnesses. Of the victims, four were 16 and one was 14. This is Chief Ryder under oath in 2009. There were multiple victims, and to our detectives, they were believable. The detectives knew how this would go. At least they thought they did. Now, presumably, Epstein would be arrested. The state attorney, Barry Krischer, and his team would build a case. And then they'd indict Epstein. After that, they'd throw him in jail, hopefully without bail. There'd be a trial, maybe a conviction. Then Epstein would go to prison for decades. 
will explain why that didn't happen, didn't even come close to happening, after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The first time State Attorney Barry Krischer ever heard Jeffrey Epstein's name was when Police Chief Michael Ryder filled him in on the sordid details of this case. He pulled him aside after a meeting. And when I told him about it originally, he said, let's go for it. You know? That's Ryder testifying under oath in 2009. The two men knew each other well and had worked on many cases before. Krischer assured Ryder the State Attorney's Office was well-equipped to prosecute a sensitive case like this. Krischer said... If this is a, an adult male in his 50s who's had sexual contact with uh, you know, children, he said, this is somebody who we have to stop. And whatever we need, we have a unit that's equipped to investigate and prosecute these kinds of cases. Krischer had a lot of sway. He was on his fourth term as Palm Beach County State Attorney. He'd been a dominant force in local Democratic politics since 1993. And he seemed to care about the issues at hand. I had known him to be a victim advocate, to uh, protect the rights of children. Well, I know that he even wrote a portion of the statute that addresses those issues. Ryder and warned Krischer that he thought the suspect would become aware of the investigation and to expect contact from Epstein's lawyers. Of course, Epstein had assembled a high-powered legal team to fight these charges. And as soon as his reps got in touch with Krischer, that's when things got weird. After the celebrity defense attorney, Alan Dershowitz, made contact. The tone and tenor of the discussions of this case with Mr. Krischer changed completely. Dershowitz, of course, is known for his aggressive defense of O.J. Simpson, Klaus von Bülow, and more recently, President Trump. Someone who knew Krischer well told me that he held Dershowitz in very high esteem. Both Krischer and Dershowitz were raised in Brooklyn and graduated from Brooklyn College. Dershowitz, just a few years ahead of Krischer, rocketed to national prominence. The two men hadn't met before the Epstein case. Normally, the state attorney wouldn't take on active cases or handle communications with the defense. But soon, records show Dershowitz called Krischer multiple times. They even met in person on several occasions. That's when Krischer began to approach the case differently. He just completely changed from not only our first conversation about this, and he didn't know the name Jeffrey Epstein at all, till when he had been informed on uh, Mr. Epstein's reputation and his wealth. And I just thought that very unusual. Uh, it's actually kind of weird that Krischer hadn't heard of Jeffrey Epstein before that. Epstein was an absurdly rich donor, the sort of local and ambitious elected official might want to meet. He gave heavily to Democrats. 
over $130,000 in contributions by then. Epstein was the sort of guy who rubbed elbows with the Democratic governors of New Mexico and Maine, and who was photographed in Brunei with former President Bill Clinton. Now remember, this was 2006, a time when many Democrats were jockeying for positions in anticipation of a Hillary Clinton administration. Krischer, the powerful Democratic boss in a crucial Democratic county, had national ambitions. He told friends he wanted to be appointed a federal judge. We spoke with 10 people who worked with Krischer. They told us that during this time, he only became more political, more consumed with power and friendlier to other local big shots in the Democratic establishment, many of whom were prominent defense attorneys. Krischer is a soft-spoken man with a full head of wispy mink hair. Every day, he wore the same casual clothes to work, khakis and a golf shirt with the state attorney logo on it. Most people who know Krischer, even people who hate his guts, say he's an affable guy, easy to talk to, charming, a backslapper. He's always very pleasant. I, I can't say he was an evil screamer or anything like that. I don't think he was that. That's Ellen Roberts. Roberts worked with Krischer in the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office for 26 years as an assistant state attorney. He was her boss. I didn't especially go out with a, a good opinion of him. It just sometimes you felt like he didn't have your back. Roberts was one of more than 100 lawyers who reported to Krischer at the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office. She specialized in vehicular homicide, but there was another prosecutor who supervised the Crimes Against Children unit. That was Lana Balalavik. And she was the person who ended up with the police investigation on her desk. Several prosecutors I spoke to said Belalovic was known as Krischer's pet, a career prosecutor who would do whatever he asked of her. She was a pawn as far as I'm concerned. She's a good attorney and very dedicated and very loyal, but I'm sure she was told what to do. Every one of the former prosecutors I spoke with agreed that Belalovic would have made very few decisions on her own without Krischer's explicit involvement. The sources we spoke to said that Belalovic was not known as an aggressive prosecutor. To them, she appeared reluctant to try cases and preferred plea deals. Jeline Valley worked with Belalovic for years as the victim witness coordinator for the Crimes Against Children Division. Her entire job was to help prepare children for testimony. She's speaking out for the first time. Valley told us something stunning about her time working with Krischer and Belalovic. Even though this was a case where most of the victims were minors, she says she wasn't brought on in the Epstein case. I never got any list of witnesses or any, anybody I needed to talk to or, you know, I just didn't. I was not involved in that particular one. Can't tell you why, but I wasn't. So that's strange, right? If they were trying to contact witnesses, they would need you to do that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was involved in in every case that, that went through there for years. <laughs> Valley is retired and mostly homebound these days. But when I called her on the phone, she was happy to talk to me. Hearing how much Valley loved her job and the way she talked about victims with respect, I thought how she would have been the right person to handle this case. Valley made her office look like a little living room with a couch so that children would feel at home while she prepared them to serve as witnesses against their attackers. She's an expert on how children are groomed by predators, 
she saw clearly that this was the case with Epstein. Men seduce them over a long period of time, and they get this opinion of themselves that they're not worthy or they're not worthwhile because of what they've done, and they feel so guilt-ridden because of what was really forced on them. By the time they figure out it's wrong, and they don't like it, and they don't want it to happen, they feel like they're pressured not to tell because it'll get them in trouble too because they participated. She's also one of the few people I've spoken to who expressed regret and guilt about how the case was handled. Instead of pointing fingers or coming up with excuses, she wondered how she didn't see the signs in her own workplace. There's no record of Bella Lovick asking anyone in her department to help her follow up with the victims the cops had found. And there's no record that she even bothered to do it herself. Here's Julie K. Brown. I haven't found any evidence that she deposed any of them or even interviewed them. Oh, really? Do you have any evidence that she contacted them? No. The prosecutor seemed to have no interest in Epstein's victims. We looked through thousands of court documents, transcripts, and audio files related to the case and didn't find any records of Bella Lovick or anyone in her office reaching out to interview the witnesses. This is nuts. Prosecutors, of course, generally speak with victims and witnesses to crime. But it's especially weird in this case. Bella Lovick was the head of the Crimes Against Children unit which Krischer set up with the specific goal of making sure the office stayed in close contact with child victims. She actually taught a course called Advanced Child Abuse Investigation. Spencer Coven, a local lawyer, represented that first Epstein victim, Jane Doe 1, the girl whose parents made that first call to police. Normally, that victim, who is also a key witness, would be in touch with prosecutors, as would her lawyers. I asked Coven about Bella Lovick. Well, it's really hard for me to characterize her because I never really had a lot of contact. She, did you feel like she was being cagey with you? Very cagey. Hmm. Yeah, she was definitely being cagey. Instead of victim details we'd expect to find there, Bella Lovick's records instead show packets of information provided by Epstein's defense. Dossiers intended to undermine some of the girls. Krischer even told Ryder that these profiles influenced the investigation. And he basically told me that he looked at Facebook pages of some of the victims and that he felt like uh, they were incredible. And, you know, I, I, I have never felt like prosecutions, evidence should be weighed outside of the judicial process. But those dossiers are now publicly available. And when you actually read them, you'll see they're pathetic. The defense printed out some MySpace pages where the girls mentioned marijuana or drinking or boys. But despite how ridiculous they were, these dossiers seemed to have made a huge impression on Belovic. The whole thing pissed off Detective Ricari. Here's Julie K. Brown. Ricari said to me, he said, look, you know, does that mean if somebody's drinking you know, beer and smoking pot that they can't be sexually assaulted. He thought it was ridiculous that, you know, that Dershowitz was sort of winning this this war uh, by trying to discredit them for drinking beer and doing things that almost, you know, a lot of teenagers do. Rickeri testified that Bella Lovick told him, there are no victims here. (laughs) 
They didn't really think of these girls as victims. You know, at some point, they just decided that these girls, what they did was akin to prostitution. And so they handled the case as if it was a prostitution case. They just looked at the fact that these girls willingly went there, some of them many times. They didn't treat them like victims. When Julie investigated the case for the Miami Herald, she concluded that Alan Dershowitz was central to the prosecution's decision to treat the victims as prostitutes. And he really had an effect on Krischer. He really uh, started questioning whether this was a case that he was going to be able to prosecute, given the fact that these girls came from, you know, harsh backgrounds and they were on, you know, the social media talking about drinking, smoking marijuana. Dershowitz told us that using the MySpace pages was actually Epstein's idea, that he had never heard of the social network before the case, but that raising questions about the credibility of accusers is a central part of a defense attorney's job. After Dershowitz got involved, Bella Lovick told Epstein's lawyers that she might be open to something called a pre-trial intervention. This is normally used for first-time offenders who made a small mistake, a misdemeanor. They report to a supervisor, serve no jail time, and if they follow the rules, the whole incident can be scrubbed from their record. This would be a remarkable outcome for Epstein. One of his lawyers, Guy Fronston, advised Epstein to accept the generous offer. Yet, Epstein didn't want any criminal charges at all, so he brought in new attorneys who would help him fight it. Krischer and Belalovic must have been stuck, Epstein wasn't open to a softball deal, and pressure was mounting to move the case forward. Here's Julie K. Brown. There were some parents that really did want this case to go forward, and the parents were calling Chief Ritter and Joe Riccari and saying, what's going on? I'm not hearing anything. Mike Ritter didn't know what to tell them because they weren't getting answers from the state attorney's office. Ritter kept calling and calling Krischer fact that he and I had an excellent relationship. I was the speaker at his swearing-in ceremony. And that he wouldn't return my phone calls. It, it, I mean, it was clear to me by his actions that he could not objectively look at this case. Detective Riccari was fed up. He went to Belalovic's office where she revealed the light deal she offered to Epstein. Ryder was furious and called Krischer. One senior prosecutor I spoke to was in the room with Barry Krischer when Ryder called. He wouldn't allow us to record his voice, so here's an actor reading what he told me. I was in the room when Ryder was on the phone. I was 10 feet away and could hear him screaming at Barry. This was a man who had intimate knowledge of the case and was surprised by how his office was handling it. By that point, we had 13 victims, and they're offering him a pretrial intervention which is basically dropping a case with no charges. I've never seen Barry act that way. Only people close to the case knew that stakes were high, that a former president was involved. Those close to it were saying, what's going on? But the case was dead. You heard that about a former president? We heard from two people in Krischer's office that Bill Clinton's name came up quite early in discussions of the Epstein case. In July 2007, Dershowitz co-signed a really long letter to the prosecutors, which, among other things, highlighted Epstein's connections. It notes his friendship with Clinton, describing a humanitarian trip they took together to Africa. 
It mentions that Epstein was one of the founding members of the Clinton Global Initiative and was praised by Clinton in New York Magazine for being a committed philanthropist. When we reached out to Dershowitz for comment, he said he may have signed the letter, but he didn't write it. Clinton denies having done anything improper with Epstein. His office released a statement saying Clinton knows nothing about the terrible crimes Epstein committed. And we can't peer inside Krischer's brain to understand why he made the choices he made. But to observers like Ryder, Krischer's goal seemed clear. And I knew that it didn't really matter what the facts were in this case. It was pretty clear to me that, that Mr. Krischer did not want to prosecute this case. Ryder and Rickeri were upset. They tried to move the case forward, using whatever means they could. Rickeri sent a document to the state attorney's office, strongly recommending they charge Epstein with four counts of unlawful sexual activity with a minor, and one count of lewd and lascivious molestation. Rickeri also requested arrest warrants for Epstein's assistant, Sarah Kellen, and recruiter, Haley Robson, for their alleged participation in his crimes. But cops can't indict people. Prosecutors do. And Rickeri's recommended charges were never filed. Their phone calls were ignored. Nothing seemed to be working. So Ryder wrote a very bold, very unexpected letter. He wrote to Krischer, and he asked him to recuse himself from the case. I wrote the letter in hope that he would think about his situation and realize that his objectivity uh, was insufficient to prosecute the case and to ask the governor to appoint someone else. Um, and I felt like that was necessary for the fair prosecution of our case that we submitted. In it, he says Krischer's handling of the case was highly unusual and concerning. I mean, it was a pretty strongly worded letter um, that said, you know what, this makes no sense what you're doing and you shouldn't be doing it. You should, we should look to Tallahassee to assign a new prosecutor to the case. Remember, this is a police chief telling the head prosecutor in his county that he's incapable of prosecuting a case. No doubt later that day, like in all other days, the Palm Beach police needed to work with Pritchard's office on every case they had going. It is among the rare moments in the Epstein saga when you see a law enforcement official taking a risk because he cares about justice for Epstein's victims. And it sort of worked. At least it put Krischer in a bind. Remember, the state attorney had total power over deciding how to prosecute Epstein. But he was reluctant to do it for whatever reason. But he had to do something because the local chief of police was demanding it and so were some very angry parents. Krischer must have known the media would jump on a case of the Palm Beach state attorney declining to prosecute a well-connected local. Krischer or Belalovic or somebody came up with a brilliant solution. A solution that not only solved the problem, but also made it almost impossible for anyone to know there was ever a problem to begin with. The case was handed over to a grand jury. So much of our court system is built around transparency and the adversarial process. Two sides, prosecutors and defense. They fight things out in public so we can all look at how decisions were made. But a grand jury is not public, and it's not adversarial. They're a weird thing in our legal system, a holdover from medieval England. 
It is a specially impaneled group of citizens who meet in complete secrecy, in sessions entirely controlled by one side, by the prosecutors. Nobody involved is ever allowed to talk about what happened in that room. In Florida, grand juries are required in any capital case, when a prosecutor wants to charge someone with first-degree murder. With every other crime, state prosecutors are free to indict people directly. No need to get a grand jury's permission. Here's Ryder. This was the first occasion in which I ever had a case go to a state grand jury that wasn't a homicide. Even among prosecutors in the same office, there is a special sort of secrecy around grand jury procedures, by design. Tim Valentine was an investigator in Krischer's office who worked specifically on grand jury cases. Valentine couldn't tell us if he worked on the Epstein case. He did tell us, however, that it was confusing and incredibly unusual for this type of case to go before grand jury. Prosecutors might use a grand jury to bolster a weak case, fearing that a judge would throw out their indictment but couldn't go up against a grand jury. But it didn't make sense in the Epstein case, which had so much evidence. And yet, Bella Lovick declined to indict Epstein on her own and instead took the case to the grand jury. We don't have a record of what exactly she said and did in that grand jury room. Those records remain sealed. We have learned a lot from people in a position to know. Detective Carey was one of them. I interviewed Joe, who did testify before the grand jury, and Joe said to me that he could not believe um, how Lana at that grand jury didn't even present evidence that he had done this to more than one girl. And it wasn't just the prosecutors who approached the grand jury in an unusual way. I spoke with David Terrace, an associate of one of Epstein's lawyers at the time, Guy Fronston. According to Terrace, Fronston asked if he could prepare a statement pointing out the weaknesses in the case and then present it to the grand jury. Normally, defense lawyers aren't allowed anywhere near that room. They play no role. It's just the state and the jurors, not like your normal jury trial. So in this case, Guy requested, made a special request, and said, can I make a presentation to the jury before you make your decisions? before you make your filing or charging decisions. And they actually considered it, entertained it. Let me pause on that for a second, because this is truly insane. Ask any lawyer who has ever practiced in Florida. It is inconceivable that a prosecutor would ever consider letting a defense attorney speak before a grand jury. Remember, grand juries don't convict. They don't send people to jail. They just indict them. They decide what charges a person faces. Prosecutors normally do not do anything to help the defense make their case. Terrace told me that Fronston was not allowed to present his argument in person, but... He was able to prepare a summary, a defense summary, kind of like of what their defenses were, where the weaknesses were uh, in the case. That's not the only insane thing that happened. Remember, the police had nearly two dozen potential witnesses, almost each of which knew many more. Only three witnesses were asked to testify, and they were asked at the last minute. Those three were only notified two days before the grand jury met. One was in Jacksonville at college and had never received the subpoena. Another didn't show. Only a 14-year-old showed up. Worse, according to the Palm Beach Post, Bella Lavic herself brought up the witnesses' MySpace pages and its references to drinking and boys. It should be no surprise, then, that grand jury returned an indictment of just one charge, of solicitation of prostitution. 
practically a nothing charge considering there were nearly two dozen witnesses who could have testified with near-identical stories. From a prosecutor's perspective, this outcome would have seemed not just disappointing, but embarrassing, a minor charge for such a prominent case. Especially considering what's so obvious now, the people having sexual contact with Epstein were coerced, and certainly not prostitutes, they were children. When I spoke with Jolene Valley, we talked about this charge that came from the grand jury. And she had nothing good to say about it. Let me tell you something. There's no such thing as an underage prostitute. These are kids. And kids tend to believe that, that adults know what they're talking about and know what they're doing, and they believe them. I would be very offended to hear someone refer to a child as an underage prostitute. That, that's just, that's offensive to me. Looking at how Krisha and Belalovic behaved, it's hard to see this as anything but deliberate. It's as if they wanted Epstein to face the softest of charges, and they used the grand jury to get that result, without having to admit that they were the ones choosing to go soft. I should note, we tried to get Belalovic to talk with us. I sent her many emails, left voicemails, and finally visited her home in Florida. This was before the pandemic. It was three in the afternoon. She came to the door in a robe, looking disheveled, and told me she didn't want to talk. We reached out to Krischer multiple times. He said he was reserving comment because of renewed litigation in Palm Beach County Circuit Court. For his part, Dershowitz said he believes the most effective aspect of Epstein's defense was a memo he presented to Krischer showing how similar cases had been prosecuted in Palm Beach County, not his star power or the MySpace pages. This is how Krischer explained that grand jury decision to Ryder after the fact. He told me that it was a noteworthy prosecution, and in these kind of controversial situations, an independent body, the grand jury, it was appropriate to have them examine it. That was his choice of the way to deal with these kinds of things. Ryder and Rickeri must have been furious at Epstein's insignificant charge. Almost a year of investigating, all of their hard work just thrown away behind the closed doors of the grand jury. That was it. That what? one felony charge. And it, that was the point that, that, that was clear to me that that wasn't an appropriate resolution of this matter. I didn't feel that justice was sufficiently served. But it wasn't over yet. The prosecutors misjudged the people who cared about this case. They misjudged the cops who worked so hard to put Epstein behind bars. Ryder was so disgusted at the outcome, he immediately took further action. That morning, I wrote a letter to uh, parents of the victims. And uh, that's the, you know, the morning that also, before I could even contact the FBI, that the FBI contacted me. And they misjudged the victims the victims they spoke with, but also a victim they knew nothing about, Courtney Wilde. Courtney first heard about the case when she learned of Epstein's indictment for solicitation of prostitution. It all but destroyed her to hear the government referring to victims as criminals. When the government's saying that about you, I'm like, okay, well, that, it must be true at this point. Her first thought was that she had been right to walk away, to stop thinking about Epstein and justice. The state thought she was a prostitute. If she spoke up, she'd go to jail too. 
It was only later, we'll get to this in our next episode, that Courtney began to feel it was her duty to make Epstein pay for his crimes, to prevent anything like this from happening to other girls. I was sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein, yes, but I was re-victimized by our government, and they really made me feel like um, I wasn't a victim and that this was my fault. Next week on Broken Seeking Justice, the case is handed over to the federal government, where one prosecutor gets the chance to give the victims the justice they deserve. If you suspect that you know a child who is the victim of sexual assault, the Child Welfare Information Gateway provides resources for reporting and preventing abuse. They have extensive information and list other advocacy organizations on their website at childwelfare.gov. Broken Seeking Justice is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 Productions. Our show is produced by Krista Ripple and Jennifer Siegel with help from Jack Panyard and reporting from Emily Saul. Casey Holford composed our theme, and this episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Parker Henry is our fact checker, and Rachel B. Doyle is our editor. Special thanks this week to Nicholas Coolish and Spencer Coven. Our special correspondent and executive producer is Julie K. Brown. Our other executive producers are Adam Davidson, Laura Mayer, Adam McKay, and Kevin Messick. I'm Tara Palmieri. We'll be back next week. <laughs>